everybody, and welcome to the 93rd ever episode of Hot Dog Jumping Frog. It's the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. Has it been 93 already? I don't feel a day over 92. I was going to make that joke, yeah. What are we going to do for the 100th episode? <laughs> um, Something. I think we... What about if we just talked about board games? Whoa. Because this is a board gaming podcast, uh, ladies and gents, and everyone in between. My name is Quentin Smith. I'm joined today by Matthew Lees. Hello, I've got a cold. And you, so if you if you hear a bit of a nasal twang to anything I'm saying and think, is there something going on with that man's nose? Then you'd be correct. There is. You might hear a sexy nasal twang. You might hear a sort of disgusting inhalation of snot. Yeah, you might hear just some deep breathing. All, I mean, it's, it's a rainbow of fun. Uh, all of these things are going to happen in addition to some board games. The games we're going to be talking about this episode are Corinth, the new roll and write game from Days of Wonder, uh, Feast for Odin, The Norwegians, uh, which I sincerely hope is not the last expansion, which has the name The Norwegians, which is what a name. I think you, you, there's space for Norwegians in an awful lot of games. I think so. I think so. We can talk about this later. Uh, we're going to be talking about another expansion, which is uh, for Space Base, The Emergence of Shy Pluto. And then we're going to round off by talking about a couple of big, exciting games, Monolith Arena and Alone. 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 When I am alone with you in space, I am an alien who will eat you. Matt, you've been alone, haven't you? I've been alone for so long. At least three hours since my wife left for work. <laughs> I, uh, I played some Klaus Wunderlich to her, which uh, is a fantastic way to get um, the people in your life to leave you. Yeah, we've uh, we've realised that Klaus Wunderlich is the music we are going to play as people are filing into the room for all of our future live shows. <laughs> it's the music that kind of plays in my head. Uh, we'll, we'll have to put a link uh, to this in yeah. the episode description. Um, it's really something. But also, before we kick off, uh, hey Matt, did you know we published a controversial review recently? Yeah, we did. Um, we published a review of Blood on the Clock Tower, and we wanted to have a little bit of a chat about that, because we said we would. To be fair, lots of people had lots of different concerns about it. Um, so first things first, Blood on the Clock Tower is a social game that has a lot in common with Werewolf. Um, it is, and this is this was a big source of uh, the f- confusion for people. It is now my favourite board game of uh-huh. all time, and for all of the uh, you know the backlash against the review, it's still my favourite game of all time. Yeah. I would maybe rewrite parts of it, but there's nothing in it that I disagree with. No, my own mea culpa that I need to say is uh-huh. that uh, so ordinarily, Shut Up and Sit Down gets a lot of praise for approaching expensive games or really any board game because frankly, a forty dollar board game is still quite expensive. With is this worth the money? You know, are you getting your money's worth? All this stuff. Now, I didn't do that with Blood on the for two reasons. First off, it was my favorite game of all time. But the second reason is that when I was writing the script, that there was a furore about the price of Blood on the mm-hmm. Clock Tower. I knew that people were already on the internet when the price was announced as $100, which they later got down to $80 plus shipping. Um, that, oh, that's ridiculous. It's too expensive. And so I felt that was unjust because, frankly, I would pay $100 for this game. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went into the script, writing the bit at the end of the script about price, basically joining that conversation, joining that argument that that's worth $100. So where usually shut up and sit down reviews end with me going, is this worth the money? Yes, no, whatever. Um, with Blood on the Clock Tower, I came storming into that discussion about price at the end of our yeah. video going, it's worth so much money. But obviously for most people who've seen the video, they weren't part of that discussion yeah. about price. So it just came across as really re- aggressive. So I definitely do regret that. Yeah, I think I think all I'd say about it really is, you know, it's been great to have that kind of um, criticism coming from our community in such a, a positive and uh, productive way. But I would also say as well, in terms of the the, the wider reaction and the uh, countless Reddit threads yep. <laughs> that popped up, I think some of it's not fair. Like, obviously, yes, it's a big party social game and it's going to be dependent on your friends. And if you don't like this sort of thing and have friends that like this sort of thing, 
of course it's not going to be for you. That's I don't feel like we should have had to cover that. But I do also feel like, yeah, just making it clear that like this is not for everyone. But if you like if this is your thing, this is your luxury thing. And there's just a couple of lines which um it's always the way with this sort of thing. And it's why we put so much care into what we say and how we say it in our reviews is because sometimes it's just a case of just adding a tiny line or adding a couple of words. And it's like it's like um is it jujitsu, the one that's about Oh, what, going with the flow of yeah, your Yeah, like changing opponent. the force of things and just having a tiny change. Uh, Aikido, which is, I think. Aikido, sure. Um, it's like that. It's like a martial art where you just do a tiny change and it just completely changes the force. Yeah, so the, clearly what I needed to spend more time on in the review, which I had no idea, is mostly it, the people get annoyed, not because of my points at the end about price, not because it's too expensive, but because for so many people, Blood on the Clock Tower is, and I've read this comment a thousand times, it is... $90 werewolf. It's like, how can they charge $90 or $100 for this, if you include shipping, when werewolf or the resistance is $10, $20? And to compare this game to werewolf is like, it just, it's it's not inaccurate. Obviously, we start the review by saying the bones of this game are werewolf. But to say that it is werewolf is so incredibly wrong. And the only people really who are making that comment on mass are people who have not played Blood in the Clock Tower. So it has similarities to werewolf, yes, obviously, but also the changes it does make are so important. And we've seen this before in board games that like Pandemic Legacy is in my top five board games of all time. Pandemic Mm. isn't in my top 50, despite them sharing so much DNA. You know, there are so many exciting indie RPGs now, but Matt and I got obsessed with Blades in the Dark, which isn't necessarily that different if you're familiar with the genre, but it was different in exactly the right way. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think that's a a really underappreciated nature of like the creative process and about creation and the fact that people can look at things. And often we do get drawn towards the things that are like, so different and so kind of whoa and in fact a game we're going to be talking about at the end of this podcast today alone is one of those games which is like the just the premise of it is so exciting and so different but sometimes actually like the most ingenious things are things that take a formula that kind of already exists and i do have some some bones with the you know the devs are very much like this isn't werewolf and it's like come on no you've got it you've got to own <laughs> you've got to own the roots of this but that doesn't undermine the changes and the quality of the changes in terms of what you, you know, the, you can make subtle changes to a thing and you can make something magical. And that, the thing is that, you know, arguably on paper, what's the difference between toast and pizza? It's like, there's not a lot of difference between cheese on toast and pizza. But of course, there's also a huge difference. But that's not to say that I couldn't make Matt's pizza toast and it wouldn't be terrible. <laughs> you know, like, so there is, there is, you know, uh, creativity really, I think we like the idea of it being about these grand gestures and about these huge changes, but often it's just very smart iterations. So yeah, I do agree that I think people looking at this going, well, it's just Werewolf. It's like, well, it isn't. Like I've played a ton of Werewolf. You play a ton of Werewolf. And I've, I've played Blood of the Clock Tower as much as you have. But when I played it at Sharks, I was very aware that initially I went, ah, oh, this is just Werewolf. And then as soon as you got into it, I was like, it isn't. It's doing something very different with the DNA yeah. and very exciting. Werewolf and The Resistance are games I've played a ton yeah. and loved a ton, but they're both games that I really don't have much interest in playing anymore. Exactly. Whereas this, I'm like, yeah, I'll play this. You know, I've played Werewolf. I didn't get obsessed with it. I played The Resistance a fair bit, but didn't get obsessed with it. Blood on the Clock Tower has, for the duration of the review process, it took over my life. Like, not only was we, we'll be playing it every week for months, but that was the highlight of the week. And now we're done with the review, we're still trying to work out ways that we can continue playing. Mm-hmm. So the too long didn't read on it is, no, it wasn't the sponsorship. Uh, yes, Quinn's actually does love it and it's his favourite game. Yes, we didn't really do the best job of conveying that in a review. Um, oh, the final thing that we really should mention, obviously, is the fact that this was a review of a Kickstarter game that was currently like 
in Kickstarter. And again, that was something which seemed to contravene lots of things that we'd said before, because, you know, we kind of didn't go with what we usually say about value. And we didn't go with what we usually say about Kickstarters. And that's something that I really agree with as well. And I think that like, which is that a Kickstarter may not a Kickstarter is a risk. It may not ultimately reach you. Yeah, I mean, that's there's that. There's the fact that it might not reach you, but there's also the fact that we have all these advised in the past to wait for retail. And with this, I would advise that as well, really. Yes, that is absolutely the line that is absent from my video that I would put in. It's if you feel that you're on the fence about this, then wait for retail. Wait for the second Kickstarter when all the production and fulfillment has been tried and tested. I, I've already was talking to the developers being like, congratulations on being the first and last shut up and sit yeah. down pre-Kickstarter review. It's just not worth our time. That said, it's... It's very difficult to... Our business manager was talking about this. Chris, uh, who runs Shucks, was saying, it seems unfair only because Shut Up and Sit Down should be allowed to publish the ebullient 10 out of 10 review because we're a passion-driven site. Uh But then how do you balance that with the fact that Shut Up and Sit Down are usually the industry's dads going, well, now, why don't you just wait and see how the finished thing is at retail? Yeah. Very difficult to combine those two things. You know, to, to be like behind the curtain again for a very brief second, you know, it's been an interesting year for us. And like having one of the founders of Shut Up and Sit Down move on um, means lots of the conversations about us have changed as well. And we have lots of little people at the moment saying, oh, you know, I miss it when the guys were super enthusiastic and just <laughs> wild. And, and you know, I don't know, maybe some of that bled in and we were like, we found this mad enthusiasm and just lent into it. Um, but even though people sometimes say that's what they want, it's not the position we're in in the industry anymore, and it doesn't fly anymore. Yeah, it's 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 bizarre, isn't it? Like the, giving people the wild, just unbridled enthusiasm that they say they want, and then suddenly everyone's frustrated because we're not being responsible anymore. Yeah, so it's it's a tricky one, and I think it's it's been an interesting review, and I think we've been frankly really lucky uh, to have a run as long as we have without making a mistake like this in the past. Yes. And hey, I'm just glad that with any luck, you know, this time next year, Blood on the Cocktail will be getting into people's hands. More people will try it and they'll realise what the hell I was talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's a great thing. It's a great thing. Matthew Lees, I've been playing a little board game called Corinth. Ooh, roll and right or roll and wrong. (laughs) uh, It's a roll and middling Mm. so this is from days of wonder who ordinarily put out uh, big games once a year uh, big glossy things like uh, well originally ticket to ride and memoir 44 Mm. and then less good things like relic runners and cargo noir Mm. and now they've put out a sort of small box which is very outside their character but they're getting in on the roll and write craze which is where everyone gets a piece of paper and then you usually have a shared resource in the middle table like some dice or something and then everyone writes down something on their paper and it's kind of like an exam yeah you you all fill in stuff and you'll have the same things but how what kind of an exam paper are you going to do out they are a lot of fun but we're also seeing a lot of people getting them out yeah it's it's funny it's, it reminds me of the legacy craze a little bit where you know you had pandemic legacy and risk legacy and everyone said oh my god legacy's the future and it was like no those were just two really good games yeah and then last year we had uh, welcome to and railroad inc both of which roll and writes that shut up and sit down the doors and now mm-hmm. we're getting all these other roll and writes it's like oh, they're, they're fine they're all right i'd tell you what i did play corinth in the dream circumstances where it was a friday i'd had a really hard working week i met up with chris and annie who run our stream uh-huh. we went to my favorite pub we got my favorite table we all got pints of delicious beer and then we just sat down to play a board game at the end of the week so like if i was ever going to fall head over heels in love for a board game and want to like enter a romantic relationship with it it would be corinth it didn't happen. So Corinth is a game where you uh, all run uh, sort of uh, Mediterranean market stalls in, mm. his- in history times. Uh, on your turn, you're going to roll a bunch of dice, like an enormous handful of big dice. And I should say, it's a Days of Wonder production. The whole thing looks really, really nice. Although 
the actual paper you're filling out, which is your market stalls and the buildings you're building and the, the town your messenger is running around, actually, I didn't like an enormous amount. For all the love and TLC that Days of Wonder ordinarily put into their um, uh, productions, I feel like they kind of floundered in producing the sheet you're actually writing on. That's a shame, because that's the game. Well, right. And it made me realize one of the things we didn't... Uh, say about Welcome To, a game where you're filling out neighborhoods, is just looking at this neighborhood and filling it out is aesthetically pleasing. Whereas Corinth has gone for this aesthetic that's a little more like you're filling in a form at the to get a driving license or something. Oh, wow. Like it's got sort of box outs and it's got pink bubbles. DVLA and- time. Yeah, I, th- I think the thing for me about Welcome To that makes it really shine is the fact that, yes, you have got this very pretty sheet of things, but also it does feel believably like you are a planner. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, about, it's about the nature of the marks you're making on the sheet as well. It's the fact that you're circling things, underlining things, crossing things out, writing notes and stuff. It makes you feel... Like you're doing a job. Yeah, Railroad Inc. also has the thing of, like, you're sketching out where the railways will go. Mm-hmm. Corinth doesn't have that at all. It's very abstract. Uh, what it does have is a kind of interesting uh, r- uh, probability mechanic that it took me a while to get my head around. Someone's going to, on your turn, you roll all these dice, and then uh, you take all the sixes, and they become available as gold. You take all the ones, and they become available as goats. And then all the That's o- a big... Like, shots fired at goats. Uh, goats are really useful in this game, let okay. me tell you. Well, but, I just feel like that's rude. Uh, gold is better than goats. I, you heard it here first, everybody. Um, so then, uh, this is tricky to describe, bear with me. What, goats? Uh, no, everything other than goats. Okay, so right. all the dice that are then higher than one become available as, I believe, like olive oil, for the olive oil stands. All the dice that are the next higher up, so like, let's say you didn't roll any threes, okay. then the fours would be available as like wine, and then, so the, the the sort of the slot that's just below gold, the only way you ever make it available for Is players... Is you get a two, three, four, and a five. Exactly. Wow. Um, but then it also means that those that, I believe it's like, you know, fabrics or spices or something... Um, Acquiring those dice gives you the most points for the least dice. But then the whole thing about Corinth is you need to complete uh, sort of groups. So let's say it's your turn. Everyone then takes turns drafting the dice. And you see that like one spice dice is available. Oh my God, someone rolled one, two, three, four, five, six this turn. You can get spice. The question you have to ask yourself in Corinth is, do I want to put this dice on the spice rather on the market stall, which requires me to get four spice and then I get loads of points Mm. or just I will complete it if I can just get one more spice and then I'll get Still a nice amount of points. So you're sort of, usually in in roll and write games, you're um, wondering whether you've been too ambitious. Whereas with Corinth, it's really just wondering if the dice will cough up what you need again. Yeah. Which is interesting. Um, the game is all right. It's it. You know, I I've made some notes because it's very difficult to describe what makes a game as simple it, as this. Well, tick. It's, it's less. It feels less exciting because of the fact that if you. Um, if you fail to get your four spice, for example, and you've yeah. gone for that, then it just means that like the only difference between you and the other players is that they were more astute in their guessing of what the odds would be. Well, yeah, no, you're completely right. And that's why Corinth kind of distinguishes itself because usually in Roll and Write, the cards you flip or the dice you use that produce the result that everyone then writes down, mm-hmm. it's just sort of um, purely random, you know? Mm-hmm. Whereas with Corinth, it has a bit of the DNA of a dice game. And the high points of Corinth when I was playing were people would roll dice and get a result and then everyone around the table would go, ah, because it was really lucky for them or it was unlucky. So what you were basically saying with your criticism there, Matthew, is, but it seems like who wins is the person who gets the high dice roll. And it's like, 
yes, but that's true of so many board games. No, of course it, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's kind of the fun thing about Corinth. It's like a bit of a roll and write and a bit of a gambling game. Okay. Um, however, what sort of uh, meant it was less interesting to me is that usually the roll and writes, we like have that lovely end game where initially you're making plans and then you start trying to make those plans work together. And then in the end game, all of your mistakes come back to haunt you. Yeah. In Corinth, I found it was a little uh, sort of misstructured where in the mid game, I realized where my mistakes were made. Like we were all sat around the table at the two times I've played Corinth going, I'm never going to get a spicy goat. Yeah. Or like just going, oh, I've made my mistake. I've realized my mistakes now, mm-hmm. but that should happen in the end game. In the mid game, if it happens, then suddenly you've got an end game, which is just a bunch of players going, oh, I really didn't do well here. And then that sort of mm. stretches that moment out. Yeah. So it's, it's good, not great. I am keeping it in my collection though, okay. uh, full disclosure, because I really like Roland Wrights and it's pretty good and it's a small box and it's quite pretty. Hmm. Okay. Well, uh, that's, that's good to know. Yeah. If you're interested, yeah. Do if you get the chance to play it, I would say try Corinth, especially if you like rolling big chunky dice and going. Yes. Yeah. There's some simplicity there. It sounds uh, to me more like um, the sort of experience that we had with Quacks of Quidlin, blah, 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 mm. uh, which is interesting because that is a game where lots of people, are, interestingly. Um, Someone that make this the internet comment podcast. <laughs> uh, lots of people have gone. This game, this doesn't like to it. It's just luck. It's just, and it's like, well, that's not. It's not entirely wrong, and it's not entirely true either. But but a lot of that fun is about knowing what other people have doubled down on vaguely, yeah, and watching them writhe and scream. You know, it's actually maybe the biggest difference from um, early shut up and sit down to late shut up and sit down is um, our our growing interest in really simple card games and gambling games. Um, like obviously this year i've been doing this video series called card games that don't suck in which i teach card games that you play with a regular 52 card deck and that is so appealing to me now but when we started shut up and sit down it was like anathema someone actually reminded me this week um that about four years ago they said do you want to do a series on card games and i was like no why would i they're all bad (laughs) (laughs) Uh, whereas now i'm like this is amazing so it's that's definitely an area where my interests have uh shifted well they they swing around don't they and i think we always uh, go through different phases of like being interested in different sorts of things like i think we were quite shocked to play war of the ring war for the ring and be like this is amazing whereas i think maybe 10 years ago it would have been like this is the best it, before even we'd started playing yeah look it's got a plastic elf yeah um all right moving <laughs> it on does have quite a lot of plastic elves but not that many because when they run out it's game over <laughs> uh yeah you have oh, i love that game it's really good i wish i was 12 and we could just play that forever oh man maybe when we're retired we'll just be two weird dudes <laughs> if we're gonna remember the rules when we're retired <laughs> yeah you're right when i'm like, retired i intend to shark people at the older people's home with poker yeah fair i think you'd just be like go to get a cup of tea and like never come back and find you talking to a water cooler down the corridor <laughs> <laughs> imagining you're in an office dear me uh let's talk about the f- expansion for feast a feast for odin a feast for odin let's bring out the norwegians we've talked about this game a fair bit um so is that the Norwegian? norwegians is that they have a bugle they it's a vuvuzela oh vuvuzela okay great um very quickly because we've talked about this game a fair bit what is your 30 second pitch for what a feast for odin uh, is okay feast for odin is a game where you are all sort of viking people and you've got all sorts of things you can do to make <laughs> things you can make things out of sheeps or 
uh, other animals and you can you can breed animals and then you can get leather and make clothes or you can go and raid things with your boats but then you get boats and then maybe you want to then send people away on your boat so you have less vikings to feed in your house and you get points at the end of the game but it means you don't have to make as much food which means you can concentrate on making more stuff and there's this huge board of things that are all different shapes but the thing is whenever you make something you then have to put it onto one of your boards and your boards uh, are little weird tetris gone wrong things and you fill them up and you have to fill them up otherwise you lose points at the end of the game but then you can get more boards and you have to fill them up and there's just so much going on but at the same time it's incredibly gentle it takes four hours to play and it's best done with cups of tea on a Sunday you know I was watching you do that first off <sighs> it's really hard to describe that game second off I, I, about halfway through your spiel there I was like oh this is really impressive and then about two thirds of the way through your spiel I went what are we doing with our lives? Like, <laughs> why, why, is, why does anyone listen to us? Today? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I really like A Feast for Odin. I really It's amazing. Like it. I think A Feast for Odin is in my top 10 board games yeah, of all time. Yeah, it's almost annoyingly good to the point that whenever we play any other Yuri Rosenberg game as the developer of the game, um, you kind of go, yeah, it's good, but it's not as good as Feast for Odin. I'm like, it doesn't have to be. I know, like, I, like, I know. I really like... Newsford. 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 I really like that game. And it's like, you're like, it's not as good for Feast for Odin. I'm like, not not a lot is, all right? (laughs) Yeah, it's like... Not um, a lot is. There's the, you know, the guy who wrote, uh, Joseph Heller, who wrote Catch-22. Right. He wrote a bunch of other novels, but none of them were as famous. And uh, a guy went up to him in a restaurant and said, do you know, you Joseph Heller? Yes. You know, you've never written a book as good as Catch-22. And Joseph Heller replied, well, neither of most people. (laughs) Yeah. Which is like... Yeah, yeah. Uh, I love that story. So now we have an expansion for A Feast for Odin, the Norwegians. And it... Uh, I'm going to fix this. Sorry, because I'm not as not close to the mic with the pop shield on. I think we're fine. You're not popping me very loud. It's okay, fine. I was worried that I was... Well, you are then. Jeez, don't... <laughs> Stop it. This is all being cut out. It's well, don't cut it out. It's fun. Okay. Um, yeah, so A Feast for Odin is... Sorry. So the Norwegians is actually one of the most interesting expansions I've ever played. And the reason... <laughs> what, what? What? Oh, are you just laughing? I'm talking about the Norwegians and saying... No, it's I'm a- just laughing at you. Carry on. Okay. Uh, so here's the thing. They sold this expansion because they know what sort of board game fans want as like, oh, there's new shapes of tiles. You can get herbs. There's new sort of like all these new little features. Um, but actually, I believe the Norwegians is kind of a Trojan horse because they have all these new features. They have uh, lovely stuff. Like everyone starts with a, a shed that only they can build. I had a stables. What did you have? I uh, had a pigsty. Lovely. But I never got a pig. Oh. I thought about it, but I just never did. Yeah, there's new islands. There's all this sort of new like content. But um, what the Norwegians actually is, is essentially a, an update that in video game terms, I say turns the game from version 1.0 into version 1.2. The main thing the Norwegians adds that's great is a it completely replaces the worker placement board in the middle of the table. The original one is gone. I've thrown my copy away. And it shrinks it and makes it tighter and adds a new thing, a new rack of spaces which you can only go to if you're placing your last Viking there. That's pretty cool. So the main thing the Norwegians adds is actually uh, a board that works better. Like, it's not an... Ex- if, if they sold the Norwegians as, oh, well, here's a new player board that replaces the old one that didn't work as well, and also we're going to take all these spaces that weren't actually that powerful and we're going to make them better, people wouldn't, wouldn't want to buy that. It would make them like the original game less. The Norwegians is, is Uwe Rosenberg going, yeah, there's loads of new content, but then you actually get it and you're like, oh my God, this is actually a fix. It fixes all of this stuff that I didn't even realize was wrong about mm. the original game. And I've never played an expansion like that. Yeah, um, I think the main thing... 
uh, I really like about it is is that final column is that thing of like you can only use this final column of powers when you have either one or two people left mm. and what that does is creates a little bottleneck um, that doesn't get away from the game that it's still a wonderful sleepy Sunday afternoon scratching your head and gradually going ah yes game it's you're not fighting for spaces still. You're not like desperately trying to compete for yep, things. The, the tone of the game is intact. Yeah, but you have got this slight element where you are because these powers, some of them are really good. And it means if you really want to do that thing, it means it basically has its cake and eat it. You can have this full uh, buffet of choices. So you're generally not stepping on each other's toes and not having a bitey time. But you have still got that element of like, if I really want to do that this turn, then... I'm going to have to rush for it. Completely. This is... that I couldn't have put it better myself. It's like the original Feast for Odin, players are, are interacting so rarely that when someone takes a space you want, it's a nasty surprise. Whereas the Norwegians in shrinking the board ever so slightly yeah. means that every single decision I was making of, oh, do I want my Vikings to lay a snare or go raiding or build a boat or a shed was infused with just a little free start of danger. And it was still, like you said, yeah. super relaxing and yet... It, it, the game is just fine-tuned. You know? Yeah, and also I think the fact that that, that is that's something you have to do at the end means that it isn't like the traditional thing you get in Euro games sometimes of it being like someone stepping on a landmine they didn't know was there of like doing the thing you want to do. And you go, oh, really? Okay, because it's like if you can see someone burning through their people fast, you know it's because they want to grab one of those things at the end, one of those treats. Yeah. And if you kind of look at what they've got going on at that point, so it's like, it, basically it's like a warning bell, which is something you don't usually get in Euro games. It's usually just like, oh, they did the thing you want to do. Whereas in this, it's like, they're going for one of those things. Yeah. How much does it matter to you that you get the thing you want to get? Yeah. And that doesn't just dictate your next turn. It dictates the whole round for you, which is in a way good because it doesn't create any more paralysis. Yeah. It, it The game isn't any harder to teach either. Like it adds new content, but all of the content works within the rules of uh, the existing Feast for Odin sort of framework. You know, it helps that so much of the new content is just new shapes of tiles yeah. you can get. And some of it just makes sense, like being able to send a small boat away and getting Do a, a small migration. Yeah. A, sm a little, just a little migration. That's just like, yeah. Honestly, um, considering how you framed it, it's kind of like, if I'd said it at the start, it would sound like a big diss. But as it is, I think it's like probably just a good sign of how well they've done this. I've only played Feast Froden maybe a couple of times, and yeah. I hadn't played it for a couple of years. When we started playing the expansion, it took me quite a while to work out which things were new. Right, now this <laughs> is the amazing point. Here's the funny thing about the Norwegians. Which is like, usually that would be for an expansion, that would be terrible. Right. Because you want something new and sexy. So here's the thing. Uh, the question now is, should people who own a Feast for Odin buy the Norwegians? And here's what's nuts. If I didn't <laughs> buy the Norwegians, I would not be aware, and I'm not even going to say them on this podcast, all of the areas in which a Feast for Odin is slightly unbalanced, some strategies kind of don't work. Whereas as soon as you buy the Norwegians and it replaces them, you're like, oh yeah, of course. I always had a sense that that strategy wasn't very good. But if you don't know what's in the Norwegians, you can live in ignorance. And A Feast for Odin was one of my top 10 games before I bought the Norwegians. It's definitely one of my top 10 games now I've bought this extra expansion. But if you never find out what's in the expansion, you can continue playing this game on version 1.0 and be perfectly happy and save money. Yeah, it's strange. It's, it's unusual to have something which is so unexciting. And just being like... What's in this? Like, it, it kind of felt like it was a, for those of you unfamiliar, you can Google it, but the Mandela effect of being like, have horses always been in this game? <laughs> because it doesn't add like rhinos or dinosaurs or whatever. Yeah, it's like, yeah. it's just like horses. What have you put in the game? 
horse. Yeah, and like, Go, it, right? it, it replaces the islands that you can take as additional boards to fill up with stuff. But it's like, you you might be like, were these islands always yeah, these four? And you could be like, yeah, sure. It really took me a little while to put my finger on what was different. Um, but that was good because it was just like, it didn't make it worse. And from the perspective of someone who's played it a lot, it makes it better. And I trust that. And I had a really nice time. I had so. a great time. Yeah. So if you want the Norwegians, by all means, buy it. If you want to save some money, don't find out anything about it and kind of live in sin. Yeah. Or just wait until you got like, oh, I'm kind of bored of this now. And then spice it up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What a game. What a game. Briefly then, we also uh, got an early play-in of the first expansion for Space Space, Mm. um, which is a game where everyone has uh, 12 ships in a little rack, and then you're going to roll dice on your turn, and you can either use the individual numbers on those dice or the added together version of those dice to trigger different ships. What do the ships give you? They give you money, they give you victory points, they give you special powers, they let you swap ships around. You're basically building a slot machine. You and I really quite like Space Space. Yeah, Space Space is fantastic. I remember playing it for the first time at Shucks, uh, the first Shucks a couple of years ago, and I was so tired and sleep deprived that I was playing it and I found myself thinking, I think this is excellent. Am I going mad? <laughs> because it looks kind of ugly and it just feels like, isn't this just magic horror yeah. with spaceships, which is the same thing of just rolling dice and then things popping off. But it isn't. And there's a bit more to it. And it has some really fun, simple choices, which give the game a lot of life. I will say that like magic horror, which shut up and sit down, kind of liked and the rest of the internet hated. Uh-huh. Uh, space Base generally has been received on the internet by critics as like, eh, it's it's only average. Whereas you and I honestly think it's pretty good. So I think it's a lot of fun. Hey, well, the first expansion is pretty fun. Um, so the first expansion, which is called The Emergence of Shy Pluto, is actually a little legacy game. It is just a little one. Don't get too excited. It's just a little it one. It has no less than like th- an, a, two secret decks of cards and two secret boxes. Yeah, but it comes in a tiny, tiny box. Yeah, it's really which cute. Which is wicked. It actually is a lot like the, um, was it Flash Forward? Uh, oh yeah, yeah, the Friedman Freeze Flash Forward series that introduce you to new mechanics as you play. As you play, yeah. So it's kind of like that. Rather than being a legacy game of being like the first game you play, do this. The second game you play, do this. It just you play and it has criteria, and when those criteria are met, you do the next thing. Which means you might get through two new reveals in the first game. Yeah. Or you know, and but the idea is that you just have more of a framework to keep playing it. So if you've played it a bit and you think this is fun, this is light cool you can get this and then you can have something going on and in between games and like i i managed to push for a, a, a kind of i snuck in and, and stole an objective from you basically yeah which meant i that got a really cool thing w- for it a micro spoiler you got satellites i did which let you do something i forget they were weird but, cool. <laughs> but it's just it was it reminded me a lot of that friedman freeze mechanic of being like here's a simple fun game and then as we go we're just going to introduce new mechanics. Yeah, so often, uh, historically, the way that card games have received expansions is, of course, like, here's a bunch of new cards. I guess they might show up in your next game. Shuffle them in, find out. Um, whereas what this does is so much more fun, whereby you play an ordinary game of space base, and then suddenly you'll hit a trigger, and then all of the new ships of this one particular type suddenly, pow, enter the shop. Yes. And so you get a table of players going, oh, look, this is a new mechanic, uh-huh. and it's instantly available. And then by the time you've sort of bought or got tired of all these new ships, suddenly there's another trigger. It's a new ship. And it's like such a gorgeous, surprising, fun, interesting way to ensure that the expansion really spices up the game. Yeah, I think it's a really cool idea. I'm really glad it's a really small box. And I already thought Space Space was a great game. But if it's something that you played and thought, eh, I could do with a little bit more of an incentive to keep going or something to spice it up a bit, especially, 
uh, for a game which is effectively about making judgments and rolling dice and hoping that your luck pans out, uh, having things where mid-game something just suddenly turns up, which is a game changer, is would be very frustrating in most circumstances. But in Space Base, it's a perfect fit. Well, we've compared Space Base to like pinball machines and slot machines before, but like pinball machines and slot machines often do things where mid-game suddenly it's like, oh, multi-ball nonsense. It's the black hole multi-ball bonus. And that's what uh, Emergence of a Shy Pluto feels like. Yeah, maybe. I mean, we, I'd be really interested to see. We, we played a, a couple of games of it and got a flavor for some of the early stuff. Um, but it seems to have a bunch of stuff there. It seems like it would last you a good, like, you know, three or four games or, or more. I don't know how long it would keep going for. It depends. Actually, it depends on all sorts of weird factors. It's impossible to predict. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I really like Space Base. I, 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 <laughs> love the, I love the ship you can get that allows you to then swap when activated, swap that position with another position. Like you get this ship and it's on seven, which means you can swap it for something else, which means when you roll a seven, you'll get something better, but then you can be clever and be like, well, I'm going to move it to number three. Yep. And then, or number four, and then move it to swap it with 12. And then it means you're getting the 12 bonus on rolls of four. I think like, we might just be <sighs> into like random chance at the minute. It's just, I think, I think what I like about it is that it is just random chance, but it's the same thing again. It's like the same thing that sounded like Corinth was lacking was if you're going to do that, don't just let people take mad gambits. Let people invent their own mad gambits. Mm. And I think that's why I love Quacks is the fact that it's like you can you can look at what's available in the shop and you can choose a strategy and you can go for it. And it might pan out and it might not. But if it doesn't or if it does, it feels like you did that. It feels like when your thing that your hypothetical thing that might happen and get you loads of points actually happens. It feels amazing when yeah. it doesn't. He feels awful in the best way. <laughs> because what were you thinking? What were you thinking? Matt was referring there to Quacks of Quedlinburg, which is, hey, if you haven't heard of that game, give it a Google. It's amazing. I think it's great. Moving on to our two Meteor games, uh, let's start with chat of Monolith Arena. Mm. So this is a sort of re-implementation of a beloved design called Nirashima Hex, which is a the original Nirashima Hex, uh, which has had like multiple versions across more than 10 years now. Um, is a game of Mad Max-style tribes fighting against each other on a hex-based grid. You pick a faction, which might be like the weird sort of armoured troops of New York, or just like a big sand snake or whatever. They're going to battle it out in this post-apocalyptic future, and you do that by placing hexagons on a board, which is a circle made up of hexagons. And every so often, uh, a fight is triggered, and all of your little people will attack in the directions that they are facing. So it's kind of like chess if... Players took turns putting out chess pieces, and then suddenly all the chess pieces activated at once and everything died. That would be cool. It's, well, the, Neuroshima Hex is pretty cool. Yeah, no. Yeah. So, so Monolith Arena is exactly the same thing. You have, uh, it's it's fantasy now, but a kind of, uh, the art is a little a little spiky, a little uh, nasty, a little bit um, new metal, which I kind of like. Yeah. Um, and then it's very pretty, and you've got uh, factions of weird elves versus nasty humans versus demons versus dwarves. Uh, who are battling out in an arena, again, made of hexes. Again, you're taking turns putting out pieces and again, occasionally triggering fights, which causes all the pieces to smash each other. But now we got a monolith. Monolith. What's a monolith? It's sort of a tower. So basically the way this works is you have this very cool three stack of plastic pieces that so shelve cool. on top of each other like so a, cool. like a, a, a war cake. So you've got these three tiers. And what you do at the start of the game is you choose three tiles from your pool of tiles, uh, from your whole stack, basically. And you can choose to put in any three you want into this tower. But the nature of it means that you can put one well, cardboard hexagon into the tower and then stack another one on top. But then keep what is within the tower 
hidden. Mm-hmm. So it means that you start the game with your base, basically the thing the other players have to destroy, having within it three units that are hidden. And two, two, are two are hidden. The, t- the one at the top obviously is visible. But basically it means that you've got a little surprise up your sleeve. And then the way the game works is... This is so cool! You can choose basically at any point to unfold your monolith and go boom, 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 and basically drop in order those other pieces outwards and make your tower a kind of like sideways castle fort with all of those units now revealed. It's it's w- maybe my favourite mechanic that I've seen this year. It's so cool. So usually you draw some tiles and you have to put them on the board and you're really restricted by uh, random chance and that's part of the game. Whereas in Monolith Arena, you might draw a bad hand of tiles and go, you know what, this turn I'm going to unfold my monolith and suddenly your opponent is facing like a wall of cannons. Yeah, or they, they if you don't know what's in there as well, it's just like you in the early game, you have to then make decisions based on information you just don't have and if you can set it up just right that suddenly you drop out this complement of something which just makes what you've got on the board go from being like ah, that's not much of a problem to that's a huge problem yeah then you can have this one amazing turn and after a fight the monoliths all retract up yes and this is again a lovely mechanic because if the units you've put on the plastic monolith pieces are killed mm-hmm. that then is a plastic piece with nothing in it so if someone places a new soldier in it, or even if your opponent places one of their soldiers inside your monolith, yep. after a fight when the monolith sucks itself back into a tower, your opponent's troops are sucked in with it. Yep. Which is amazing because then if you choose to unfold your monolith later, yes, you're putting out one of the pieces which has what you want on it, but also you're going to have to put your opponent's soldier somewhere. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I love the fact that it's a really tight little war game where at the start of it, you feel like you have huge amounts of possibilities in terms of tactics and space. And you've got these range units and you think, I'll put that there and snipe over there. But very quickly, it just jams up. And very quickly, you've got no room to move. Your range units feel like they're crammed in against other things and you know especially your monolith maybe you just can't unfold it and i enjoy the tactics of that of being like oh i really enjoyed yes yeah, surrounding your monolith so much that you didn't have the two hexes next to it to, yes. to unfold it or you don't have the two hexes you need once you know what's in there you think okay well i'm just going to block off that angle and mm. then what they've got in there is useless so it's an incredibly fascinating interesting design and it has absolutely amazing production values like yep. even the the boards you have in front of you the little uh, player sheets um, are just beautifully designed and laminated and slightly glossy. And and it was really nice for me to play a one-on-one game, although you can play it as two-on-one or even uh, 2v2. There's there's fun four-player stuff in there. But um, I recently played a couple of games, Critical Mass, a lovely game of robots fighting each other, and Dice Throne, um, which is a beautiful uh, sort of thing of players rolling dice and trying to make sets and fighting each other. But those were both one-on-one games where I played them and then I just felt... Uh, where am I going with this? What's what's missing? Because I didn't want to play them again. Yeah. Lovely thing about Monolith Arena was playing a one-on-one game, which did have that spark where I finished it and went, oh, I just want to take everything I learned and play again. But also games feel very different. You can have very quick games of it or games that last an hour and feel incredibly thinky. Mm-hmm. It's a very surprising experience in that yeah, way. Yeah, and we had a lot of games that felt very close, Yeah, uh, which was unusual, particularly because some games it was like, really swingy like i think uh, you were grinding me down and then right at the end i just started doing huge amounts of damage to a tower all at once and it became like really on the line this is so important for one-on-one games it's what chess doesn't have but like for example netrunner does it's the idea that you could just get lucky in the final turns and switch turn it all around Mm -hmm. and monolith arena has that in spades you can be pummeled by your opponent but you still have hope you have that little hope in your heart that you know what in the final turns i might just do enough damage to their banner to win this and you did that to me twice yep 
which yep. is great. Yeah, it's a great little game, and it's something that, especially if they expand it with some more... Like, they've, yeah, they've already announced the first expansion for it. Yeah. Boom. It's a very cool little thing, but... 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 Um, we were really thinking about doing a video review for this game, and in the end we decided against it because... Uh, it's just really lacking in one regard that we find very difficult to forgive uh, for stuff that we would review on the website and be recommending more broadly. Yeah, which is the rules. The rules. Yeah, the rules. Um, the rules are just a bit unclear. You know, it's it's such a it's such a shame, especially because this is from Portal Games, who put out First Martians. Mm-hmm. Was it the year before last? You know, which I had to tear apart because it's like the rules were just it was unplayable. And Monolith Arena does have a similar problem where, like, it sh- it should be a simple game. But, and I have sympathy for this because, you know, I, I like, well, I just mentioned Netrunner, but, like, there's games like the X-Wing Miniatures games or the Arkham Horror Card game. Mm-hmm. Stuff put out by Fantasy Flight that's also very thematic, lots of different conflicting rules. And Monolith Arena falls into that sort of area. But when Fantasy Flight put out these games now, they put out big reference sheets. They put out errata. They, they put out all the support that lets you play it. And Monolith Arena, despite all this publisher support, does not have any support when I needed to find out what the hell was happening yeah, in our game. We were struggling to... We were nose in the manual quite a lot. Oh, I have my nose in the manual all the time. And when we weren't sure about edge case stuff. And because it's an interesting little game where edge case stuff just comes up quite a lot, um, we just really struggled to find answers. You know what's uniquely infuriating is that Portal have actually announced an Alexa app um, that for Portal games, whereby if you have an Alexa in your house, uh, an Amazon Alexa, the talky robot, yeah, you can go Alexa uh, in Monolith Arena. How does poison work? And this is they've, they've shown this in the trailer for their upcoming Alexa. Right, they have two people from their studio talking to an Alexa and going, Alexa, what about this rule query in Monolith Arena? It is. I, it really actually boils my blood that they're working on that, but I'm trying to play the game. I want to review it now, and I cannot for the life of me just Google answers. Yeah, you don't want that. You just want a web page. Yeah. You just want my web page. Just give me the, just, give me the answers. Just have get a, some SEO on there. Have do a, a web page with a Q&A. And you know, it's nuts how often... You'd, sometimes you don't even need a web page. If you just have a designer who is reliably answering questions on Board Game Geek... Yeah, that'll do. Then, because... When you Google it, that will that thread will often be the first result, and they yeah. don't they don't have that. Yeah, you're not going to have like other websites competing for that incredibly esoteric <laughs> chain of words. So yeah, yeah. No, that's the thing is that when you want to find the information out, if you can't find it out, it's frustrating, especially when there's edge cases. And in this game, a lot of edge cases. Another interesting thing though is it's like it's very fair to be critical of uh, Fantasy Flight, particularly I think um, the Arkham Horror card game ends up sometimes, especially if you're not playing frequently. Yes, uh, it does have like a similar thing to Gloomhaven of it just being very like, oh, how, how does this work? How does this work? Yes. you know you have to be in the flow, but because it's cooperative when you're stopping the game to look in a manual, it's that's not a big problem. When you're playing head-to-head games where you're constantly just checking a manual and constantly just having to go, oh, no, I need to look this up. It just reminded me of playing Warhammer as a nine-year-old and just being oh, this yeah. intensely unsatisfying um, kind of rules legal off. And I, I think the thing for me was I was like, I remember when we were playing and I was like, how harsh am I being though here? Maybe because the game is very good looking, we're holding it to an account, which is just not fair. But then I realised on these amazingly glossy sheets that are beautifully produced. This is a really nice production by Portal. You know, there's so much of this game they can, they can and should be really proud oh, of. Oh, 100%. And if you're big into games, like, it's worth checking out. And I should also stress that if in a year's time, Monolith Arena, like, has really good rule support from the publisher, I would c- consider going back and still doing that video review. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But there was a thing on these sheets 
these little, little A5 sheets that you flip over, which have your information about basically what your race is, how to play them, what their special rules are. There is a, a little header for each sheet that says common problems, Yeah, which is like when you find yourself writing in a nice font and embossing something that says <laughs> common problems, I really feel like you've got to take a step back and be like, is this, have we done something wrong here? Because it's like, yeah, it is, it is a game, unfortunately, whereby it's a lot of fun, but your fun and the flow of what should be a punchy, wicked head-to-head game just gets a bit stifled by consistent stumbly problems, Yeah, which is a real shame. If your players are regularly having problems, that might be a time to stop and rethink how yeah. you're teaching the game. Like, I, or I just think have like a really solid little, little like fantasy flight style book of being like, here's all the edge case stuff, head-to-head. Yeah. Which is like, you know, you think, all right, but then if you've designed this game, you must you must know all of this stuff. You must have run into all oh, of no, this they stuff. Oh, ha- no, they have all the answers. That's why it's frustrating. It's Especially just not giving them. Because it's based on Yoroshima Hex, which like it's the same design, which means all the problems in Monolith Arena have kind of been solved in, Monolith- in Yoroshima Hex. Except because everything has a different name, it's like it's a dwarf with guard rather than a, a punk with shield or whatever. You can't Google any of the rules. Yeah, it's... um. It's unfortunate. Otherwise, a really great piece of work. Absolutely. And I, I sincerely hope that uh, they'll get the rules together so we can do that video review. Yeah. yeah. Matt, I hear you have been alone. To be alone with aliens. That's a song by Sufjan Stevens about being alone with aliens. I've been playing a game called Alone. It's a Kickstarter game whereby rather than having that old classic formula of three... Uh, ostensibly good people have to fight against one ostensibly bad person who is well powerful it flips that on its head and has three ostensibly bad people um, <laughs> having to hunt down one ostensibly good person so it's it's all versus one person plays the hapless space marine yep. on a ship with flickering with lights problems and ship aliens. With issues let's yep. just say uh, and because you can have one two or three people being the bad guys right? yes so basically um it's kind of like if you've ever played a video game, it's kind of like Dead Space or the film uh, Aliens. <laughs> um, right. It's more aliens than alien, for those of you wondering. Um, yeah, you're a space marine walking around and you're in a dark space base trying to do some objectives and survive. Whilst in between there are aliens popping out and bad things happening. It's got some really, really bloody interesting mechanics and I'm not surprised that it did well on Kickstarter. I presume it did, well, it did well enough to exist. It did quite well. I think it's Horrible Games as well, who I want to say did Railroad Inc., but I should fact check myself Okay, later. well, yeah. I It's one of those things where as soon as I got it, because I don't really keep an eye on Kickstarter stuff, and as soon as I got it, I was like, yeah, I can really see why people got excited about this, because the way it works is you have two maps in this game. You have the map, which only the bad aliens can see, and you have the labyrinth, which is basically the map the the person who's in the dark can see and the way it works is you move around and every time you move around or explore you uncover more of this map and in a traditional kind of like uh, imperial assault or descent style things you're adding these new map tiles that then you can then go okay well this is more corridor okay this is a t-junction okay there's a door here so when the game starts is what does setup look like setup looks like um you have a big cardboard sort of shield like gm style shield where behind it the aliens all sit and conspire with a map which is covered in little icons of things so they know where everything is they know where they choose where you are and then all you can see as the human player is just whatever bit of corridor they've plonked you in 
So wow, oh, wow. So like set up, one bit of corridor. So set up is as simple as putting a corridor in the middle of the table yeah. and a miniature on it. It's basically you're in this space, and it's just one space. It's like this is this corridor is where you are. Wow. And then you can choose to like explore, which basically means like using your little uh, wrist computer to to find out what's down the corridor, or you can just walk into the dark and see what's out there. Or you can do a bunch of other things, like you can block doors, you can switch on... If you find a light panel, you can use it to switch on the lights. It sounds a, a lot like Resident Evil. It, it kind of is. It's supposed to be... And that's why, you know, Dead Space, for those of you that don't know, was a um, basically Resident Evil in space. Video game. Video game. Um, so it's supposed to be a kind of horror thing, if you going around trying to find your way around. And it has some very cool ideas. So the really cool thing about it is that you have, say, I think eight turns, maybe ten turns, and you can do a thing one at a time, being like exploring, going to this room, searching for equipment, fighting an alien, maybe. Sometimes a good idea. Never know. Um, <clears throat> or just running around like a, a, a sort of terrified person. The aliens don't actually ever get a turn. Okay. Which is interesting. They just react to what you're doing. So each alien player has a hand of cards... And they're not allowed to tell their other alien friends what cards they have. And on a three-player game, the other two aliens just have their own decks to draw from. And there are four different decks. And they're very loosely kind of like, you know, these make the aliens nastier. These make the aliens faster. These make uh, the players' items and things go wrong more oh, often than so, not. But every alien player has their own, like, thing. Yeah. I mean, the way it works with four players is a little bit weak in the fact that you have um, two aliens each have their own unique deck and then the alien in the middle draws from both and can choose. Oh, come which on. is like, I mean, they, but they could have allowed them to have their own deck. I guess maybe it just makes it too hard. I, I don't know. Anyway, um, it basically means that you just do things and you just keep taking your turns and then in between your turns, the aliens will basically go, ah, oh, we're going to do this. But they, they kind of have to negotiate of being like, I've got something quite good I could do, etc. Oh, can only one of you play a card? You can play two each round but the second one you play basically fills up two slots on the player's board and the the less if they fill up too many slots then they get less danger tokens to put on the board listen i'm gonna let you know the secret here <laughs> alone is pretty cool it's pretty close to being a genuinely quite great game it's not quite there and one of the reasons it's not quite there it reminds me of uh, another kind of sci-fi aliens inspired game that we played at uk games expo oh yes of just being like this is a cool idea and they've tried to squeeze in too many mechanics and they've tried to make it too true to an idea of a thing. And in that, it was aliens. They've had everything you have in aliens. And there comes a point where it's like, slow down there, soldier. You've got a lot of cool ideas here, but you've got a few too many cool ideas and it just doesn't quite hang. Okay, so would you say it's missing... Uh, when you compare it to Descent and Imperial Assault, I feel like the, the core of those games is... It's fun to just move across a room and roll some dice and kill a monster. Yeah. Or a stormtrooper. Yeah, it doesn't quite have that. So the combat is you have a bunch of different aliens, but really the way you fight the different aliens isn't dramatically different. There is a gigantic worm, which is really dangerous, but if the lights are on, it's pretty useless, and that's cool. But everything else is just like a little bit tougher or a little bit scarier. And also you have a weird mechanic whereby you have your health and your like kind of willpower at two separate bars basically okay but then when you run out of one you just start eating through the other so the only real reason you have them as two separate ones ah. is because at the end of each round you get some new tokens which allow you to basically do two actions in one turn adrenaline tokens and the amount of adrenaline tokens you get is based on the difference between these two values so 
it kind of in game mechanic terms it makes sense because what it means is it means at the start of the game you don't have many in the middle of the game if you've really like lost a lot of health or lost a lot of willpower it's not called willpower. I can't remember what it's called. All games just have a different. Might be called horror. I don't know. Like it's just it's 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 brain brain strength. It's brain strength. If you've got a big discrepancy in the middle of the game, which you might well have, it means that suddenly it's like you have this burst of doing loads of stuff and getting double actions and running around the spaceship. And then towards the end of the game, when you've wound down both of your meters, you're going to have less and you might be in trouble. Okay. But in reality, it just makes like losing health or losing mind stuff feel a bit like inconsequential because you kind of know that they're the same meter Ah. which is the thing and this is the thing is it's got so many different mechanics and so many different interlocking systems and so many different things you can do that it doesn't become overwhelming it just becomes a little thin and i couldn't help but wish that they'd focus a little more on some less of the ideas you know we have encountered this with kickstarter games before i'm thinking of sort of rising sun which was pitched as a negotiation game because that's what's exciting but then in practice that's actually, the core conceit that made people excited and made them want to back the kickstarter is kind of absent from the design and i haven't played alone but i have read the manual and what struck me is i wanted to play alone because of this you've got a team of players all of whom can see a map and they're moving monsters around in the dark and they're telling the player oh you can hear noise from yep. below you yep. but what put me off when i was reading the manual is that the bit that excited me was so little of the manual yes and so much of the manual was like other junk yeah, that, this is the thing, is there's all sorts of things like you can block doors after moving, but then aliens can get through doors by spending movement and you've got all these other stuff like you can search for equipment and use equipment and you can level up by killing monsters. And it's like the thing about it that's really cool is the fact that you have this map and you have to move around the map and you have to memorize it. At the end of each round, your labyrinth, what you can see as a player, resets to what you can currently see. Wow. Because it basically means that your wrist computer that does maps for you is the same one um, from the film Prometheus in that it's rubbish. (laughs) And, And it's like, oh, we've apparently lost all of that map now because, I don't know, it's just gone. So it means that you go through and at the end of the round you're just aware that you can currently see all of this stuff and if an alien moves into any of these areas you'll see them because okay. it's like on your temporary radar being like oh there's an alien there it's coming after me and then the round gone and it means that like setting up the game is actually really fast which is great for a game like this because it's just like here's the map boom done then you add on the stuff generally but then at the end of the round again clear it away it means it doesn't take up too much table space and it means that what would be really messy and unwieldy keeps getting cleaned up and reset in a way which is really pleasing. Mm. But the real coolness of the game is you've got on your little player sheet a little mini thing and you just use whatever tokens you've got available to try and create your own little map. Now, there's a video game called Etrian Odyssey. Which oh, is- wait, hang on. So the, the, the Space Marine player has some tokens with which they can essentially try and make notes on what the map is you're allowed to yeah with basically all you have is this one type of token which is just blue on one side and green on the other side and just with these one tokens and this little grid which is the same space like same shape as like the both floors of the map yeah uh you can then then put them however you want oh my gosh that's amazing so you can make a map but you're given inadequate tools to do it you're given well basically just enough adequate my rule was like if it was on the bottom floor then i'd have it on the blue side if it was on the top floor i'd have it on the green side so i could remember the locations of rooms mm. just by doing that that's so cool yeah but then also you can have a thing if you can ask how many spaces am i away from a certain thing and you can ask two things like how many spaces am i away from 
this rune that I'm looking for. And they might say six. And then I put like, because there's loads of these tokens, I put like six on that space. So I knew that like it was six from there. And then if I asked somewhere else, I could put three there and then I could triangulate basically. Wow. But there's always a degree of you having to remember stuff, like remembering where T-junctions are, remembering where it's not a clean through gap in terms of making calculations. Um, that was really cool. Having a thing of basically knowing you were going to keep losing your map and having to draw a map and remember it with limited information, such a cool mechanic. However, just not that interesting in the game because even though you've got these two um, two basically boards that represent the different potential flaws you can have leading to a combination of 16 different configurations by mm-hmm. turning them upside down and flipping them. And then there's another one, the expansion, which has another one. But because the floors are always the same size, they're always the same shape, it makes it like quite easy to do this element of the game because as soon as you find an edge wall with a staircase it's then very easy to work out the rest because uh-huh. you, because it's always like a rectangle. It's always a loose rectangle. And it just means like, it just made me realize like a game where basically you were going through trying to evade aliens, trying to do a job whilst also putting together a map that was slightly imperfect is such a cool idea. Yeah, and that's what they sold the Kickstarter on for sure. Yeah, and but then there's just, there's other stuff and it just ends up feeling a little bit like this other stuff just isn't that interesting. And playing as the... um the human on the run um in the manual it's like oh, it might feel really intense and scary but it's supposed to it, it didn't really I, that was going to be my next question what was the sort of this is a thematic game what, mm-hmm. what was the storytelling like um the storytelling not so great i mean you do have a, i just sorry I, I should clarify i meant that in terms of um in descent when you fight a dragon if someone spends their turn moving up to the dragon and then hits and rolls like the best possible on the dice and kills the dragon in one hit that feels evocative and exciting and electric and i was wondering if alone made you feel sort of like outnumbered or outgunned or scared or you know all of the feelings you would associate with a sort of aliens style pastiche there were definitely some points of like mild dread of being of trying to outwit what you thought the aliens might be doing and having no idea really how many aliens there were around Mm. um you being like running down a corridor and thinking is this what they're expecting or not do they actually have i just killed most of the aliens are there more out there um I think the thing that kind of lets down the alien side is because they have these these hands of cards and these shared units and they don't actually have any control over specific things, it doesn't feel like you're really being hunted in the same way. And also, they haven't really done the best job of the actual decks of cards that the aliens can use. Okay. Like, they're just not that interesting sometimes. Like one of the decks, the green deck, I think, was to do with like messing with you a bit. But a lot of the time it was just like every time I found an item... The, the, the flavor text on them is fantastic. It would be like, what was that noise? Or like, I think I just saw something for the names of the card abilities, which really, really does nail the kind of like what's going on. But a lot of these cards were things like, oh, it's not working or it's, it seems broken. So it'd be like, I found an item and then it'd be like, oh, I play this card, which means now like the item you got is kind of broken, which is like mechanically fine. But it's not very cool for being like, I'm an alien hunting him down. Like, I just made your jetpack a bit crap. <laughs> like, it doesn't feel super alien I'll tell you what, the best, and again, this ties into the fact that I just wish they'd focused a bit more on this conceit of, like, mapping under stress. One of the cards, and this is the best thing in the game, one of the cards allows <laughs> allow the aliens to basically, if they choose, when you move into this room, to give you incorrect information about the room. And then the only way you can find out if that information is correct or not is to spend an action searching the room again or next time you move into the space, it will be corrected. But it meant I moved into an area where 
I knew the stairs were. Do you remember what the flavor text on that card was? I can't remember, oh, no. Shame. But I just rem- I think it's like, oh, it's not quite what it seems or something or something isn't as it seems. Or But but I moved into a space and on my map, it's like, this is where the stairs are. And then Ed, a friend we were playing with, played this card with a grin. And it basically meant that they then showed me what the room was. And it was just the corridor and there weren't any stairs. And it's like... <laughs> We kind of both knew that there were stairs there, but it meant that because they kind of like done something and that works having an alien that's like messed with your mind a bit. So you go to find the stairs and there aren't any stairs, but it's like because you're hallucinating. Yeah, is that's really cool. So it's like there's so many really cool ideas. But unfortunately, the bottom line of it is the puzzle of how you're playing as a human is not quite interesting enough and intense enough. And you don't feel like you've got enough up your sleeve to feel like you can use your ingenuity to to get around being hunted. Right. And hunting isn't that exciting either. To be honest, a lot of what you do as an alien is about updating the map. It's kind of like, in some ways, it's really good. One of the things I really like about it is if you want to play a game and be the evil character, like in, you know, Imperial Assault, you have to be the person who knows the game the most. Yes. You can't be like somebody who doesn't. Whereas in this... We had somebody who was an alien in the first game who just doesn't really play board games. And because you're collectively doing things, because you're collectively maintaining this map and giving information and doing things, you can kind of cruise along. But obviously, that's also the downside is the fact that really, you've got the person who's playing the human running around playing a slightly more complex game. But then the other people are kind of playing a beer and pretzels game. Um, they don't have to do that much. They can just occasionally chuck a thing down. You know, and... it does seem to be a, a cornerstone of really great asymmetrical games is um, making every faction, whichever faction you're playing, you need to feel like really powerful in what you can do, mm-hmm. but that you're just so like outgunned by the crazy powers of your opponents you know yeah. that was something that root got is like whichever faction you play in root you have other players going you can do what and you feel proud in that secrecy whereas alone it feels like neither the aliens nor the humans feel uh very strongly about their role maybe like you don't feel enormously empowered or that your opponent is crazy powerful yeah i think that the second game we played when i was playing as the human everyone just felt a bit like they were struggling to get me because I just kept gunning them up, which was a bit unusual, but it seemed to be working for me. But with did what you I had. even feel powerful in those moments? No, um, and I think really uh, I I never knew what was in the dark, so I, I didn't really feel powerful when I was winning. And I think the biggest problem we had actually was when we, we first played is when you're in a scenario where the aliens are really you know giving them hell. Um, it just feels a bit mean, and I think that's the interesting thing. Is at least, <laughs> like you know when you've got uh. Imperial Assault, the whole thing of like the, this is a thing. Sometimes when you turn things on their head, um, sometimes there's a reason that they're up, they're one way up already. Is because when you've got Imperial Assault and you've got three people smashing Darth Vader, uh, Darth Vader, that feels good for everybody. I mean, obviously, when you're playing as Darth Vader, it still makes you quite sad. You're like, <laughs> this isn't nice for me as everyone cheers my demise. But it's good beating evil and going, hooray! Yeah. Whereas when it's like three evil aliens crushing somebody in the dark, hooray! And I think it's one of those games where both time, both games, when they've ended, it's just felt like a bit of an anticlimax in a way. It's like, it's, it's a really cool idea. And it's not bad. This is the thing. It's not a bad game. It's pretty cool. I think it's really just like... It's one of these games that's an interesting Ameritrash game that I wish just tried to do a bit less and tried to focus a bit more on doing what it does. You know, and again, I think there is a, a slight bleed of Kickstarteriness into the fact that like it's got all these different minis of all these different aliens, and there's not many, it's like five different alien types, but there's not a lot of distinction there. You know, there's not 
It it's, has the miniatures, but it doesn't have the rules to back them up. But before we move on, because we two have... Two aliens. Just put two aliens in it, and that'd we, be fine. But two aliens that are kind of, like, different. I mean, a Space Hulk, of course, only has gene stealers, exactly. and, uh, which is one kind of alien. And, I feel uh, like it could would be fine with one alien. Also, I, because we haven't used that term in a while, so for those oh, yes, of you yes, who are yes. new to the podcast who've just heard the word Ameritrash, that is not shut up and sit down uh, calling American board games bad. That is a beloved industry term for American games that put storytelling first. Yes. It, it alone is made, I believe, by an Italian team. So. Yes, but it has that kind of same punchiness of being like yeah. dumb theme, over-the-top stuff, cool minis. It has some really fun elements and it didn't outlast its welcome. It isn't too hard to set up and learn. It has a weird quirk that it has two manuals, one to learn how to be the good player, one to learn to be how the bad player, but they're basically the same manual just with the information framed differently, which is kind of insane. But actually having a game like that where you can have your own manual to check at the same time is neat. It's frustrating as well because like... Yeah, it's also frustrating. No, I mean, I was going to say that because... It, back in the day, you know, you might have um, uh, a game like this enjoy sort of a version one, but then because there's so much potential here, they do a second edition that's really exciting. Whereas with Kickstarter games, it just seems to be it's like going to be something new. You, you alone has been on Kickstarter now, and they can't do that again. It's like all the people who bought it and got excited aren't going to buy it again. So no. it's kind of a shame to see an idea like this that's maybe not going to get any more sort of tender loving care from the designers when it has yeah. so much potential. And there were some some big slip ups as well. I mean, I really like the fact that it's very quick to set up. Up. Um, you can basically just randomize submissions by being like, here's three random objectives, let's just go. And it's a game that is quite quick to get on the table and get going. It does have a big campaign book, which has some like art and some story, and you play through these campaigns. But the campaign mission setup, because it's a game where you don't have to set up a specific map, you just get going, it doesn't... The missions themselves don't have a lot of flavor, and it has... It's such a dramatic amount of text to read out. It's like somebody who clearly enjoyed writing a little science fiction thing, but it's like, I don't know how many times... I mean, I don't know how many designers listen to what we do or care about what we do, <laughs> but I don't know how many times we have to say on podcasts or videos, like, do not make players read out a side and a half of A4 before doing anything. Like, I am somebody who likes reading stuff out. I'm somebody have, who's good at reading You have been paid out. to do voiceover work. Yeah, and like, somebody gives me a sheet of A4 and says, read that out to people. I'm like... Like that's like you got to pay me. <laughs> like by the time you've done that, I'm going to be tired. Other players are going to be bored. Yeah, everyone's going to be bored by like the end of the second paragraph, even if you're really giving it everything. It's like don't ask people to read out that much information. No. And so we, it's it's interesting that they have this little story campaign book, and I we just like I'm not doing this. I'm or not reading this out. Print out multiple copies of it and do it as a script, like a script read through. Right? You know, that's not a bad thought exercise for designers because it's like that's what you really should do. Like if you want people to read that much stuff, print it out four times. Oh, maybe you can't afford to print it out four times. Do you need to print it out at all? It's like it's as a question of being like, if it's not so good and so vital that everyone reads it maybe make it shorter it's like how pandemic legacy is such an interesting thought exercise because pandemic legacy's plot is about the, the entire thing cannot be more than 800 words yeah like for the for the entire campaign um and yet it has while the storytelling is disappointing and thin in some ways it also has some of the best storytelling because if you have one sentence which is you know i'm not going to say anything because it's a spoiler but there are individual sentences in pandemic yeah, legacy you just go, <gasps> which do more yeah. storytelling lifting than like a page of re of reading yeah it's just naturally evocative and as always i think that the, the daddy with this stuff is gloomhaven so if you're if you're in in doubt if you're making a game you're like hey what's the right amount and right tone and how to do writing these things look at the cards in gloomhaven because they just whack a lot of flavor into not a lot of space Put your hand in my mailbag for me a letter. It's that time again. It's time for me to put my hand into the big old mailbag of life and pull out a letter. I think it's just... Oh. 
Who put this in here? It's not that. Okay, all right, I'm passing you over a letter. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so this letter actually comes from Twitter. How does uh, that happen? I don't know. At ConmanAU asks, I love games that alternate between me thinking I am a tactical genius and now I'm the world's biggest idiot. What game would you recommend that maximizes that roller coaster? Ooh, I, I have two recommendations for you on that front. Decrypto is a very good example of a game that makes you feel like you're the cleverest person in the world. <laughs> Uh, followed by a huge idiot because you will, you will give a, a clue which you think is so clever or you'll come up with a solution for the other teams that you think is so clever and then you're just you're completely wrong or your entire team just doesn't get it at all and you just you either oscillate between feeling like they are the biggest idiots in the world but fundamentally at the end of the day you're the idiot you, you made the choice you thought they'd get it have you, I mean, presumably there's room in Decrypto also for like to give a really good clue that is then just decoded by the other team. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> like, because because you don't understand the line of thinking that they're using and then you just give them something which is just like, oh, brilliant, we've got it. And you're like, oh, no. <laughs> so yeah, that, that is rife oh, for I've, feeling like I've, you're smart and feeling like you're an idiot. There's a few games that I don't own because you own them. And Sheriff of Nottingham is one. Decrypto is another where I'm like, oh, I wish I could play it more. I might have to get my own copy. Yeah, we had a thing where we got ruined um, at Christmas because we'd all just seen something on television that the other team made reference to. And it's like, that wasn't cheating. That was allowed because the whole rule in this sort of game is you cannot make reference to things that are like in jokes that not everyone knows. But specifically because it had been something related to something we'd just seen on TV. <laughs> I'd, I never would have thought of it because, you know, because... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it was like, oh... Damn it. How could we, you know? Yeah. That's um, great. What was your other My other one is probably um, Tigers and Pots, Tigris and Euphrates, just oh. because it's a game whereby, you know, when you're, when you're winning in that, when you're doing great, you just feel like you're king of the world and you're like overseeing, overlooking this vast city of what? perfection. Tigris and then you, and you realize you've left the bloody back door unlocked and somebody just flips over your entire empire tigris and euphrates definitely makes me feel stupid it's not a game that makes me feel clever ever even when you know you and i played the fabled game of tigris and euphrates after we filmed the review which was the most intense one versus one game we've ever played you definitely feel clever when you spot the chink in the armor when you go oh, if i do that though then i will like literally flip over their entire city and it'll it's, be mine it's like glimmers of intelligence in a sea of being a, a, a burk yeah, but I don't know. I, I very much felt like in some of those games that... Hey, I mean, you're better than me at Tigers and... Uh, ti we, ah. we need no, Here's the thing. On the podcast, we need to call it the correct name because Tigris people Euphrates. will Google Tigers and Pots. Yeah, Tigers and Pots. I don't think you'll even find our YouTube video doing that. No, because it's not in the body copy it's of the there. video. <laughs> um, so yeah, t Tigris and Euphrates, the t two rivers. The Just two rivers. Just two rivers having a good time. What could be more natural? The game I chose for what makes you feel like an idiot and then makes you feel amazing is a game I don't believe you've played and I've just realised it would be perfect to do on a stream. Mm -hmm. uh, it's Space Alert. Oh yeah. This is a game by Vlad Akhvatil who made games that Matt loves like Galaxy Trucker and Codenames and like a ton of other stuff. He's probably shut up as favorite designer and matthew he has a new game coming a new big uh -huh. game he was doing party games for a while he has a new big game coming out i believe i'm so hype i'm so hype i'm so hype anyway so space alert is um i realized is the er uh, game for this question because space alert is a game where you all it's a co-op game you all run a crew together it's a deeply soviet version of star trek where it's like the ship has a screensaver that turns on and disables everything unless someone wiggles the mouse every 30 seconds the elevator can only hold one person at a time so uh space alert is a real-time game where threats come out and then like let's say it's a sh attack ship coming off the port bow then it's like okay well right it's a co-op game so first off someone needs to go to the room with the port laser someone else needs to go to the 
port lasers engine room and put a battery in there. Yeah. So, like, what it might be is, okay, Matt, uh, you go down the elevator in turn one, turn two, enter the engine room, turn three, put the battery in, then I can fire the laser on turn four, and we'll blow that ship out of the sky. Except you're not dealing with one threat, you're dealing with, like, seven. So it's like, you you have intruders on the ship, and you'll be like, but Quinns, I can't get into the port area until someone goes in with a gun to kill the person who beamed aboard in there. Anyway, the point is you puzzle out this and you work out a solution and the game only takes 15 minutes because it's real time and you work so hard and you go, yes, but if you fire the laser in turn 12, then we'll do it before the... You program everything with all of these cards and then finally, once the game is over, you reset the board and then you work out what actually happened. So turn one, you all flip over your card. And yes, Matt goes into the elevator and I go into the laser room. Oh, wow. And then turn two, you all flip over the card and you go, okay, Quince, you put a battery in there, right? And I look at the card and I put the wrong card in, which means I didn't put a battery in there. Instead, I pressed the shield button, <laughs> draining energy from the engine room, which means oh my. the ship doesn't have the energy we thought it did for the entire rest of the thing. And then it's that just- That might cause a problem. It's like <laughs> you, you go from feeling like like a SWAT team you know, I feel to feeling like, like children. I always get confused and feel like I've played this game when actually I've played Space Cadets. Yes. Which both, has like uh, such a similar... They're both games of... Co-op games of being a goofy team in space. Yeah, yeah but this one sounds a lot more interesting. Space Alert. Actually. Space, space Cadets space, is, is... Space Cadets is a fun romp. Space, 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 space Alert space. is one of the best board games. The only reason I don't play it is because it's so intense. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll play it on a stream oh, and you're going to have your mind blown. Yeah, no, that sounds great. That sounds phenomenal. great. Thank you very much for listening to the uh, a very long, very long bumper episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. Thanks, as always, to Mr. Steve Davitt for providing the incredibly scronky sax that so thrums through this podcast. That wasn't a sentence. Keep it scronky and thrumming. <laughs> what are you going to do for the rest of the day, Matthew Davis? I am going to do whatever you tell me to do because you're at my flat and we're working. Hooray! Hooray! But in between, I might blow my nose. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Thank we'll you. be back with another podcast full of games. That's what we do. I don't know what else the podcast will be full of. Games! Bye.